What are cryptocurrencies? Hey, hey, hey. What are NFTs? A non-fungible token. Time to buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin just seems like a scam. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Bitcoin! So we're here today with Dr. Aras Camporosos Athanasio. How did I do? Excellent. From this point forward, I think I'll call you Aras, if you don't mind. Yeah, I would prefer that. <laughs> and we're, we're here today because I recently finished Aras's book entitled Speculative Communities. And the subtitle of that is Living with Uncertainty in a Financialized World. I actually don't remember how I found my way to your book. So if any of our listeners were the kind soul who who um, turned me on to this book, you know, please raise your hand and, and remind me. Um, but, you know, I to me, just, you know, given what I think about all day in terms of, you know, believing in the future of, of digital assets and also living in what feel like speculative communities. You know, we, we spend a lot of time in, uh, you know, discords, alpha groups, you know, these groups really speculating as little weird communities and often speculating on things like jpegs and and so the title of the book um you know grabbed me and then um i mean the book was for me a very fascinating and often challenging extension of the theories that i've had for 20 plus years about the way the internet is changing humanity you know i've, I've been saying for a long period of time that you know, I consider myself, you know, a, a student of the way technology changes culture. Um, and fundamentally, your, your, your book is, a, is about that. Um, and, you know, I, what I think is what I found, you know, incredibly interesting is that you have, you know, a book called Speculative Communities in, in 2022. And it talks about, you know, the way that, that, that humanity is actually evolving into a species um, uh, of, of speculators in a way. And you can tell me if I've overstepped there. Um, you know, but you actually don't venture into the the realm of of uh, you know of digital assets or or any of these things, but it feels quite related. So I was really excited to talk to you, and um, I think our audience would really benefit from understanding the, the ideas that that you put forward in the book. Um, and then I wanted to see what we might extrapolate um, for that in, into the world of of digital assets, because I believe you know the same way that in the year 2000, um, the, the internet was both, uh, let's say, in undeniably the future and also a bit overhyped, you know, digital assets kind of fall into that same category of being, you know, kind of undeniably a part of the lives of future humans, but, you know, we don't know exactly what role they'll play. So I'm trying to connect those those dots and um, and really your, your book provided me a lot of framework and tools to um, to think about those things. So with that long, long introduction, maybe you could tell the audience, you know, what this work is and how you came about it. Yeah, thank you, Ian, for this very kind uh, introduction and uh, all the thoughts that you on the book that you um, shared with me and it's really uh, it's fantastic to be here and uh, I'm really um, looking forward to this conversation because as you were saying um, there's something in the book I mean the book is an attempt to uh, it's a sociological kind of uh, piece of work and, and it's an attempt to kind of capture uh, uh, the moment and uh, that we live in and it's you know it's it's philosophical and theoretical and that it has political implications. But there are aspects of it that resonate with uh, your work and your you know theories of like you were saying uh, digital life and digital assets that I'm also very interested in understanding better. So I'm really glad to 
to hear about those resonances. Um, but to, yeah, just to give you a sense of what drove, sort of what motivated me to write the book, maybe, and actually to link this a bit to some of your comments about technology and the internet, uh, a lot of the motivation for writing the book uh, was has to do with uh, a sense of frustration with uh, popular critics. Uh, and, you know, I'm a sociologist and a social theorist, political theorist, and a lot of the critical thinking around contemporary politics and specifically the use of technologies in contemporary politics tends to be quite um, sort of uh, veering towards a demonization of, of new technologies or on the other end of the spectrum, a kind of uh, utopian, naive uh, uh embracing of those technologies as kind of the instruments of, uh, you know, revolution and, 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 and a radically uh, new future. So I wanted to uh, sort of put forward an argument about how our contemporary moment of uncertainty, of radical uncertainty, is mediated through new uh, technologies. Uh, and I was thinking here at the level of everyday life, social media, uh, things like you know, uh, Twitter and, and Instagram and TikTok, uh, but also um, things like dating apps, things like astrology apps, you know, more, more on the obscure end of digital social media, uh, media that connects us, um, but it's often seen as yet another manifestation of kind of capitalist surveillance capitalism, you know, the Zubov argument that we're just merely passive users of those media isolated, fragmented, uh, individualized. Um, and there's something about this narrative that doesn't quite uh, feel right. I, I don't, and I see this with my students, you know, I teach uh, 18 to 21 year olds here in, in, at UCL in London. And yes, it's true, they're consumed by their phones and, you know, they seem distracted and so on. But I wouldn't say they're apolitical or isolated. You know, they seem to just be forming a different kind of community uh, that doesn't necessarily look like what we expect it to look like. And I guess part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to, rather than uh, sort of uh, pro provide a, an alternative look, an alternative theory of our contemporary moment, I'm trying to uh, kind of scratch beneath the surface of what is already out there, the kind of communities that are being created through uh, our engagement with those new technologies um, in our everyday lives and and maybe provide an alternative language to use to capture those connections. So to summarize connections and relations and the social aspect is at the heart of what I'm trying to capture in the book. Um, and I suppose to just one final thing in terms of speculation, I see speculation projected into that social realm. So I'm not interested in the speculative in the sense of just mere gambling, you know, uh, and this kind of negatively connoted, uh, uh, the, the individual gambler, risk taker type of figure uh, that we often get in, in um, again, another demonizing kind of narrative about financial capitalism. Um, I'm interested in how, what kind of speculations can emerge out of collective endeavors uh, and how speculation in that sense can become a vehicle for community. 
So yeah, maybe that that gives you a bit of a sense of that the, the background for writing the book. Yeah, and I, I think that I mean let's focus on the word speculation for a moment. I mean, you start the book with kind of a definition of speculation and and um and ultimately speculative communities. And I think that might be the first hurdle for people to get over is the one that you just mentioned. Because when you think about um speculation, you know, as you as you said, there's a sort of um negative connotation to it, which is which is about um which is about gambling effectively. Um and, and again, you know, for our, our listeners, you aren't talking about speculation in the way that, you know, say I'm doing on on NFTs on on a daily basis. You're talking about um, the decisions that people are making using their everyday, te- te- what is today everyday technology, um, like Instagram, like TikTok, like Tinder. Um, so, so tell us what you mean, you know, by by speculation in that in that context, just so people can really try to get their heads around what you mean by speculation, because I think they might have in mind gambling on an asset instead of um, the kind of attention speculation that is is more what you're what you're describing in the book. Yeah, no, thanks. That's a great question. And I, I also think it's important to try and give some clarity there. So the way I would uh, distinguish speculation or, or what I call in the book uh, the speculative imagination uh, from something like uh, individual gambling or or kind of uh, taking on risk or exhibiting kind of um, looking for opportunities through risk taking like one does in, in kind of you know going into the casino um or indeed some forms of financial risk taking there's something about speculation that relates to uncertainty rather than risk so uncertainty is uh, the key uh vehicle but also resource uh, to be to engage in, in speculative endeavors what do i mean by that and why the distinction is important so risk is something that can be calculated uh, risk is something that can be um, probabilistically kind of controlled, estimated. Uh, and so there, there is the implication that taking on risk, it, there is something calculative about it. There's something that implies control, some form of control, right? And uh, so uh, where on the other hand, uncertainty and indeed radical forms of uncertainty uh, sit with the unknown, uh, and the that which cannot be probabilistically uh, uh, predicted, and 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 in that sense, with the future, with the unknowability of the future, uh, and there are two sides of that coin of unknowability. The one side is um, the somewhat um, sort of even distressing or negative feeling of the sense that you know we have no control over the future, over our future. Um, and that can leave uh, folks uh, profoundly uh, feeling insecure, and and um, you know there's something quite debilitating, perhaps, with not knowing what the future holds and accepting that we cannot ever know, with despite of our best technologies, right? But there is also the other side of this, which is the openness, uh, the openness of unknowability uh, of the of the future. So if the future is unknown, it means that we can shape it, right? It means that it also means that the dominant narratives of about what the future looks like that we have available through existing models of say capitalist economy uh might be uh might be we might be able to challenge those right um and so there might always be more than one pathways to take uh and i find that aspect of 
uncertainty often missed in, in our discussions about um, speculation. So speculation, I see speculation as an attempt to look at uncertainty in the eye, to kind of, uh, rather than attempt to control it, to put a number on it and, and, and try to calculate it, an attempt to kind of go with the, uh, the wave, like enter the wave, ride that wave of uncertainty, uh, immerse oneself into the unknown, kind of dwell in that space of the unknown rather than try to kind of avoid it. And I see that, as, as you say, and in, in the book, I talk a lot about our day-to-day -day lives. And I see that as a sociologist, as a behavior that manifests itself in the way we deal with things like our um our day-to-day -day decisions to do with, you know, the way we uh, form relations, the way we, um, the way we uh, consume content in, in social media. Um, I'm interested in dating apps, for example, because unlike the narrative that we get that dating apps are just a symptom of our disconnected time, the, the you know, uh, that we are just all very alone and just consumed in our screens, I see in that an embracing of uncertainty, you know? So, and, and I think, and importantly, you know, I, I say in the book, when we all swipe, uh, in the act of swiping, we, we're not just merely alone. We imagine ourselves as part of a community of swipers, yeah? So that's, that's, uh, that, that fascinates me. I, I think there's something that is quite uh, generative in that kind of collective embracing of the unknown. Uh, so, that's just one example, but then, of course, you know, there is uh, there are other realms, and indeed, to do more with markets and what kind of markets can facilitate that more open-ended type of speculation, uh, or you know, uh, that living with the unknown rather than against the unknown um, principle. Let me. I, I think you're right. The dating app example is a great mm. one because of, because again, you're you're putting a a theory out there which does fly in the face of what you know kind of the, the the contemporary narrative is like you said the contemporary narrative is is that you know we're you know we're so lonely and and so it's why we're turning to these these apps and and you put forth something different and again tell me if i if i get this right but i, I mm -hmm. found it really fascinating um and, and you just sort of alluded to to both um you know one is that you know that gives us a, a feeling of control in the face mm -hmm. of uncertainty mm -hmm. um and and the other is is that as you just said we we are still a part of a community a community of swipers right we are it's a community where the the kind of the symbols i think as you say you know are are just different they're different mm -hmm. than the ones that you know maybe my generation had or my parents generation uh had and and you know the you know but it but they are still we it's not that we're disconnected we're we're just mm -hmm. you know, we are connected mm -hmm. in a different way and i think mm -hmm. the, the question I would, i'd like to to get at in that um apart from just you know do i do i have you correct on that is you know the, what like the the internet has brought us this i guess is my question because i've always thought of the what the internet did fundamentally is it unlocked consumer choice right you know i mean when i grew up i had you know the 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 FM spectrum and the number of channels on television and the magazines I could get at the local store, you know, and now we have this unlimited choice. So the internet has brought kind of unlimited distribution of information, but you're, you're, what you're saying in, is, is that that unlimited choice um, has, has actually, you know, created a, a, a new human. I mean, you, you actually, you know, you say you've, we've gone from homo economist to homo speculus, right? So that's, that's pretty, 
makes sense to me actually because it, it certainly feels like there's a before and after um but you're really you're you're getting at the heart i think of what some of those changes are so i'm i'm, I'm i guess i'm i'm curious like it's really it's really just tcp ip that has brought us to this you know on some on some level like uh this reconnection of humanity or or am i am i oversimplifying yeah no this is a very, very interesting question Ian. and what i would say is that the internet is a big part of it in in the book i locate the origins of this shift that you just described between this figure of the homo economicus to what i call the homo speculans i located well, what is in, that core, the key difference yeah, for people yeah okay yeah so the, the homo economicus is these it's a very kind of prevalent label that economists primarily have used to describe rational uh, economic behavior so it's a kind of oversimplification of the, the the individual agent within an economy who is seen as a maximizer of uh, their utility uh, through their everyday decisions so their decisions are binary and they're driven by their rationality and they that's how they operate and this is the kind of model of human behavior that uh, is modeled uh, into the mainstream economics and, and so we could we could say that that's the you know post-war pre-internet human yeah i think we, we we can say that and i mean it's it, it's probably uh its origins are even before the, the war i guess you know you, you can say that's over 100 150 years but i would say it still persists. I mean, in the accounts, in our mainstream understandings, and in, in you know, in, in kind of media, all of the all of mainstream media accounts of how how markets operate, uh, mainstream economists still. I mean, they what they've done is they're moving to add aspects to that home economics and say, okay, it's not just everyone's rational. People have limited rationality. So you know, it's not always fully rational what they do. We need to account for their emotions, for example. But the model still remains quite binary and quite limit limited. Uh, but my, my claim is that with things like financialization, so the increasingly financialized nature of our economies, which means that uh, we're moving away from the reality, the material reality of asset trading to the much more virtual uh, reality of, um, uh, of, of, uh, of, of looking into uh, virtual assets, for instance, you know, the stuff you, that you're interested in and the the realm of immaterial, right, that is removed from traditional modes of trading. That does something to the uh, this kind of uh, uh, stable and one-dimensional figure of homo economicus. I think we, the, our very exposure to that more virtual reality, to that more unmoored reality from, from where we can grasp materially, makes us more open and more uh, it nurses us into this more speculative mode of being that is more prone to accept uncertainty and and hence not to act as utility maximizer, but to act in a way that looks for opportunity in what might seem confusing or disorienting or unstable. So that ma maximizing your efficiency implies a more stable narrative or, or uh, seeking out stability. The, the speculative, the homo speculans I describe in the book, is meant to capture that more open-ended and more, if you like, opportunistic approach towards uh, the uncertain 
the, the, the confusing. And just to say, to go back to what digital media have done, I think a lot of what they've done and the, the, the choice that you mentioned, consumer choice, you know, we are, it's true that we are bombarded and, and uh, surrounded by information, by such amounts of data and information that we're clearly unable to process and manage. Uh, and, and that is disorienting, right? I think this element of confusion and disorientation is quite an uh, uh, that one that resonates uh, with people. But the point about homo speculans is that in that disorientation, in that confusion, we find also something comforting and indeed something that allows us to connect through. And so the success of something like dating apps or TikTok with this fast-paced, uh, you know, swaps, swiping of content is not that it provides stability to us, is that it reflects back to us this the, our very uncertain condition. And that's comforting because what we see in the constant swiping is just a reflection of the world around us. So that's that feels like a, a, there is something appealing about that. Uh, and so, yeah, I, I, I'm, that's something that I'm interested in uh, a lot in, in this new remodeling I tried to make of, of our contemporary behavior. I think it's it's so interesting that that because to me you're you're um extrapolating from something that I you know I, I feel I, I always use media as the um you know as as the kind of easy descriptor. I spent you know twenty years in digital music and and that um you know I watched that unfold and I watched that change, right? I watched that change from kind of a hit on FM radio to you know a, a hit on TikTok eventually in the end. and I see that that difference from you know the way that I grew up watching, you know, the same episodes of Brady Bunch and the Gilligan's Island and Gilligan's Island over and over and over and over. You know, to to seeing you know people that would never watch the same thing twice because you know there's such an abundance of choice. And to your point, there the the world is constantly reflecting itself at them, right? I mean, in so many ways, TikTok is like the the school. I mean, the television that I just turned on after school, except it's a hundred percent personalized. You know, hyper personalized as opposed to hyper broadcast, right? I had very little choice of what to watch when I came home from school. And, and now, you know, um, someone who's coming home from school today has a channel that was made especially for them. And, and, and there, and, and so what you're doing is sort of say, asking, all right, well, what are the sociological implications of that reality? Like this is, there's no question. This is a different, a different reality, what are the sociological implications of that? I think one thing I find fascinating is that you you imply that that the world today is somehow more uncertain, right? And I must I guess I'm that's I'm I'm questioning like why what what makes today more uncertain than the world that I grew up in? It's a, it's a, this is a difficult one, right? Because I don't want to suggest that there's been a sort of neat transition from a previous state of. Uh, great security and stability to a current moment of total uncertainty. I don't think that would be accurate. Indeed, in the book, what I tried to do is tell a longer story of the history of speculation um, and the history of financial capitalism, which I see uh, starting uh, in earnest in the late 19th century with the, uh, the birth of the uh, modern derivatives and futures contracts that change hands in the Chicago Board of Trade. Uh, and I see that as an interesting, and I don't want to be too technical there in terms of financial products and so on, but I, I, it's, it's a fascinating moment in history because uh, for the first time you have 
this uh, formalization of a kind of trading that uh, is, like I was saying earlier, completely removed from the material reality of, you know, production of wheat and, and you know, uh, other oil and, and trading goods. Um, and there's something about, and, and while that is happening, also what we have during that time in the late 19th century is this popularization, this attempt to democratize speculation, to make it a game for the many through uh, what is called the bucket shops uh, that were spreading in Chicago, another big uh, American metropolis at the time. So you have the attempt of the everyday folks, and indeed those that were excluded from the formal exchanges, like people of color, women, uh, farmers, they were able to go to these dingy kind of dens and, and that were projecting through the stock ticker uh, what was going on in the inside the Chicago Board of Trade or Wall Street and kind of place bets uh, and, and so sort of speculate uh, with small amounts of money. And that spread like wildfire during the late 19th and early 20th century. And it's an important moment, I think, because uh, it, it, uh, it, it is... a uh, uh, for the first time, it, it shows the pos possibility of uh, of capitalizing on uh, on uncertainty, and there we're talking about the uncertainty of basically price movement, uh, and, and and that becomes something that many can uh, can sort of participate in. And in terms of, but to your question about what changes as we move forward, I mean there is something uh, that moment historically is very important because it moves us to debates about what is legitimate speculation. How does the state, how do governments uh, intervene or have to intervene into regulating that kind of type of speculation? And what we see is that uh, as we enter the 20th century, uh, courts and governments re regulate against those bucket shops. So because they cast it as gambling, as immoral behavior, and they protect the big exchanges and what goes on within their walls as moral and indeed, you know, what speculators do in those exchanges is they protect society because they take on unwanted risk. So they they're fulfill this social moral purpose. So we move to that in a more state, in, in, in an economy that is more regulated. And then uh, in the book, a kind of trail how we we enter sort of the post-war period of, of more stability in terms of financial trading and regulation. And then you have the 70s, 1970s, with uh, the gradual deregulation of financial markets that reignites these more innovative uh, uh, kind of speculative behaviors within uh, mainstream trading. Um, I think what happens then uh, is a combination of what you are suggesting, which is the uh, the arrival of the internet, of course, and, and the kind of connections and access that virtual spaces give to uh, for everyday connections that include discussions and trading opportunities. Um, but I think it's also something more, uh, it, it's, it, there's also something more insidious that is going on, which is the, the, the pace of financialization of our everyday life uh, is such that we are constantly asked to uh, see our lives as a process of managing risk and, and relating to uncertainty. Uh, you know, how we see our education as an asset, uh, how we see, you know, housing as an asset. This is not just something that takes place in, in formal trading, but, you know, it's something that we viscerally uh, as, as in our everyday life's experience. And so there's something about that financialization of everyday life that leads us 
uh, to that question of uncertainty. And it's not, so it's not strictly speaking that uncertainty increases in that kind of outside realm, but it is that it's, it enters, it seeps into our everyday life in much, in ways that we have to confront it. Uh, and, and so, and with the internet and with those new virtual tools, uh, it, it, it just, you get a, also a cultural layer of that uh, uncertainty. You know, it, it becomes, you get an image, you get a representation of that uncertainty that is, is quite powerful. I'm not sure if I'm answering to your question. I think that's here. great. Yeah, that actually, that helps me a lot in terms of um, understanding exactly what you mean, Vera. I think that, that that concept of financialization of everyday life um, is, I, I, I like pointing these things out. I like the way that you bring these to the forefront because I think they they put a a term, a sociological term perhaps, to something that we feel. You know, I, I feel it and I'll tell you a very simple way that I that I feel it and have felt it in my life. Um, you know, I, I'm I'm 50 years old now when I was, you know, to, let's say in, or my early 20s. Um, you know, I was not a I was not a dumb person. I had a degree in computer science. I had a, a, a had a you know a kid when I was a, a teenager, so I had some life experience. I had a job. I can also tell you I did not know how to turn five hundred dollars into fifteen hundred dollars, right? I um you know for me like the way that I got that value would be I I'd go to work, and after you know two weeks I would get a paycheck, right? Um I I, I didn't. I feel now like every 21 year old kid has a sense of how to turn $500 into $1,500, right? I mean, I, I, you know, if any of us, all of us have, you know, friends or, you know, kids of friends or nephews or nieces who, who you know, are in the, in the world of sneaker trading, um, their lives are denominated in something other than the local currency. You know, their lives are denominated in, in boxes of shoes that they, you know, that they trade online. The communities that they live in are communities of of like-minded people, and and I, you know to me this is a financialization that I didn't experience at that age, which is just clearly a part of their lives and maybe not a part of the life of you know every kid in in college or high school. But every kid in college or high school, I promise you, knows one of these kids and knows that they live in their own world and their own community, and that that community has its own economy, and that there are ups and downs and swings and good and bad and you know, Adidas is this and Nike is that depending on the day of the week. Right. Um, you know, so there, and I, and I do see also with the way the internet has, you know, wouldn't, it simply wouldn't be possible without because the internet has, has, you know, collapsed the world into this, this world where, you know, a 16 year old kid can have a, a financial relationship, you know, with someone in Japan, right. Which, you know, wasn't possible for me when I was, uh, when I was in high school and can, and can have it instantly. And then I don't think it's too far of a stretch to see, you know, how that, um, you know, jumps an order of magnitude again, when suddenly that shoe is dematerialized, right into, uh, you know, into a scarce digital good on a blockchain, which is, um, you know, which is part of an always on, uh, always liquid, um, frictionless marketplace. Right. So I, I think that, that, that that's, that's the kind of the connection. I love that you're, you're sort of, I love the idea of connecting that to the bucket shops in Chicago in the late 1800s, um, you know, which are effectively bookies for the stock market, right? So it's just, it's, it's fast. That timeline is, is really fascinating to me. And I think it does actually point to how the internet has accelerated it. And, and also I think that what you're getting at is and to answer, you know, my question is it's not necessarily more inherent uncertainty, but the, as you said, it's come to the foreground, it's come, it's become a part of my life. 
again, and I think that's the key in what I mean by the sneaker example is that if I were 21 years old today, financialization would be more a part of my life than it was when I was 21. And that's kind of what you're getting at, if I'm not mistaken. 100%. Yeah, I think you put it really, uh, really beautifully there. Yes. Uh, and uh, I want to just make a quick comment uh, that I think is very important, a point that is very important to make um, that, you know, I mentioned already that what I try to do is kind of go against the narrative of demonizing speculation, demonizing new technologies. There's also another narrative that really bothers me and I think is very inaccurate, which is that of crowd psychology and the irrational crowds. The, the You know, it's a very, very prominent uh, label in uh, financial thinking and in, in mainstream media, again, we, you know, we hear about manias and delusions and how there are this irrational exuberance. You know, there's a term, you know, Greenspan was talking about that. Um, so there is this derogatory, this way of deriding um, the irrationality of the many. Uh, and, you know, that originates all the way back to the 19th century again. You know, it's, it's the bucket shop gamblers, the immoral, irrational bucket shop gamblers juxtaposed against the rational, formal traders who are the figure of the legitimate home economicus, right? That, that, that stands at the heart of, you know, American capitalism. Um, so, and that travels with us and, and it's still very prevalent today. If we look at how uh, the, the discourse around I, I suppose, you know, crypt, crypto trading, for instance, and, and NFT trading and the, the way in which, you know, kind of retail trading, mimetic trading, uh, it's often seen, as, you know, it's a fad, it's a, it's a Ponzi scheme. It's, and, and, you know, the, the, our critical sociological tools to speak of my uh, kind of profession that we are, seem to me quite uh, um, skewed uh, and influenced by that uh, deriding and, and kind of limiting view of looking at crowd behavior and fads where there is other stuff going on. And that's the other stuff that I've, I'm very interested in exploring. And I'm, I'm also interested in your thoughts and what you see there as, as potential, because from where I'm standing, I see things like um, uh, sort of, I see things like storytelling, that, like sharing cultural experiences, uh, while we can say, you know, even making things like uh, content that is has mythical elements or has, I look at conspiracy theories, for instance, as something that is, again, seen through the lens of, oh, people just go crazy, you know, they're irrational. I don't think that's, you know, and if only we could educate them and show them the truth, show them the, the evidence of science. This is all great, but I think what conspiracy movements uh, how they attract people is because there is an element to playfully and, uh, uh, and play around the truth and also connect in doing so and create myths that are cool and 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 often very problematic and very regressive, right? So I'm not endorsing QAnon here, but um, but there are there are elements I want to say in that culture of contemporary speculative communities that are more, um, let's say. Uh, interesting and generative and, and possibly creative and playful than we give them credit for. And that, that interests me. Yeah, I think I think that well, a couple of things I, I wanted to to um, follow up on there. One, I'm curious how you think, because one one thing that I've felt 
throughout this you know history of the of the way the that in the internet is changing culture and actually if you talk to someone like jeff jarvis who used to be um the the um the editor of people magazine he would tell you it goes back further you know that there was actually a point in the 80s when because of you know cable television and and vhs and you started to have you started to go from kind of mass culture to what he called massive niche or niche Massive niches is the way that, that that he put it. So you know, you say speculative communities, but there's also some. And then in in what you just said about um, about the way these communities form and they and they tell stories within these communities, there's also an increasing number of communities, right? I always make make the 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 um, the claim that Discord actually, in many ways, represents society more than better than any other technology at the moment because it is a collection of closed communities, right? They are they are the, they are each um they're each communities it's not there isn't a community it's it's a collection of of communities so one thing is just this kind of increasing number of of of, of like-minded um people gathering around something if you're familiar with um balaji Srinivasan's work the network state he sort of you know really plays this out that we're moving from god to state to network right and and that in the and that we're gathering you know our our kind of our neighbors our network neighbors um you know, more than, than physical neighbors. I think the other thing that's interesting in what you just said in that kind of counter narrative that you're providing is, you know, and I, I believe you say in the book that, um, you know, instead of doom scrolling, people scroll because it brings them hope on some level. Um, you know, I like that it was the Napoleon quote that our CEO told me recently that, you know, leaders um, define reality and give hope. Right. Um, and so it's on some on some level, that's what what we're getting when we're doom scrolling, a definition of reality and maybe hope, which is a counter narrative. It's I mean, it's called doom scrolling, right? Because it's supposed to be this like depressing pit that we're falling into. But but you're saying, you know, I, I think that you have a sort of a counter narrative to that. But I guess I'm curious, like, you know, how to, you know, where is that? Where is the hope? Or, and is mm -hmm. that why we do it? Is that, you know, in other words, I think you say, you know, to, to, to come back to something like QAnon, people, they don't, they don't sort of go in for QAnon because they're, um, you know, simply because they're bananas. It's, it's because they actually believe that this narrative um, brings a future that's better than yesterday on, on some level. Is what, what's and and even though it, again it's um it's a it's a, a niche perspective that wouldn't have had any airtime in a world with three television channels. Yeah, I completely agree, and this is really uh, what I tried to describe with the notion of speculation that I'm I'm sort of putting forward in the book, which is if we were to use speculation then as a tool through which to understand uh, the political moment and things like conspiracy movements like QAnon, or even, you know, the more kind of regressive side of the kind of Trump type of populist and the and, and his following. Um, there is something about, you know, you get those critics, those explanations that say, look, this is all to do with an obsession with the past. It's all about uh, folks looking for security in the past grand narrative of the nation state and the family and tradition. And that it's a return to the past that they crave. And I think that's inaccurate. And I, I think part of the success and the appeal of QAnon and, and, and some of those more conspiratorial movements uh, is precisely that they, uh, they are, there's something about an image of the future that they project. 
uh, there is a projection, there is, there is a collective projection of um, alternative reality, you know, and I think gaming actually and LARPing and, and, and this gamification of uh, our collective endeavors that you will see in, in conspiracy theories and conspiracy worlds, uh, the very gamified worlds, um, is uh, geared towards a, a, a future projection. And I think we often lose that. And, and speculation has these two sides, uh, I think. One is the side of the openness of the future. The other side is it also provides security, right? It provides insurance. Like speculating uh, is also, it has this dual aspect. You need a relative position of security from which to speculate on the openness of the future. And I think when I say security and insurance, I mean it also in the symbolic sense. So there is something about regressive conspiracy movements that take, uh, th they seek refuge to some security like, you know, nationalism, for instance, is, it, it, you know, it, it's uh, something that allows them to feel uh, a sense of togetherness, but it's not complete. It's not the full story. That idea of stability uh, allows them to then project into totally chaotic uh, narratives. I mean, you know, what is QAnon a stable narrative? It's totally, I mean, it, it, there's all sorts of narratives going up and down and, and fragmented. And uh, my point is, is much like other aspects of our everyday life. It's very fragmented and very disorienting. It's not, it's nothing but stable, uh, but it, it does give, give some hope. And to your question, where is the hope? I think this is a fascinating uh, uh, a question because the doom scrolling itself is not going to save us, right? But there's something I think about making moving from the our uh, doom scrolling uh, on on an individual level to turning the doom scrolling into something into a political tool uh, against uh, you know the established centers of power, elites, and so on, uh, and. To give you an example here, because uh, you spoke about networks and this kind of different communities that coalesce in this uncertain environment. I'm, I look at something like fandom communities, uh, like uh, K-pop, you know, the Korean uh, band music and these fandom communities are global, truly global and totally virtual through TikTok and so on. And there is something about the uh, language that is developed in those fandom communities and they're very young you know these are teenagers or, or people in their 20s uh, and that uh, is fasc fascinates me uh, something about their approach to navigating those digital media and, and and doing so politically often so in in the in the book I talk about Towards the end of the book, I talk about this event in uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma, when uh, TikTokers, mostly from those fandom communities, sabotage the Trump rally there, right? Uh, I think your, your listeners will know the story. Um, there is something in the behaviors and in the uh, practices of, that we see in those groups that specifically seek to stay within that space of confusion and disorientation that I find fascinating and very generative. And this is the transition from the, merely the world of uh, just trading in a speculative way to a way of doing politics in a more speculative way that I, I think, you know, there is hope in there. Uh, and so in other words, rather than trying to make a point about showing the truth or exposing 
your political opponent uh, weaknesses or fallacies, you add to the confusion. You cultivate even more disorientation as a political tool um, that, that can create opportunities. And I think there's something fascinating in that. And also, you know, it's something, there's something playful. There's something that can be also fun. And these are elements that are we tend to forget in this, to go back to the figure of home economics, the rational utility maximizer. Uh, you know, there's no fun in that. So, yeah, I don't know if that gives you a bit of a no, sense. I, I, I mean, I love it because to me, you're, you're drawing this line between, you know, the, the, the concept that Yuval Harari would talk about, the fact that humans are story consuming creatures. Um, through to kind of these, you know, network communities that, that Balaji might talk about. And then, you know, kind of the application of that is that they become in their own way, a speculative community. Um, and I think, and, and the thing I'd like to, to turn to now is the fact that, you know, you've, you've um, covered this concept of speculative communities without, without ever really covering speculation, right? And what I mean, now you've covered it, you know, the way that the ways that we speculate, but what I mean is financial, you've covered financialization of, of society and you've covered um, a speculative community without covering the speculation on specific assets in particular digital assets, even though there's no talk of sneaker trading either, which is, I think, and also, you know, whether it's discogs.com for vinyl or, you know, all of the sneaker trading sites, you know, or et cetera, there, there's a, there's a certain, kind of um there, there's a way of speculating online and 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 those are um you know to me that whether it's um you know discogs.com or or a sneaker trading site or OpenSea, they're all kind of you know communities um communities that that have speculation at their at their core um but also people are are kind of um you know they're living they, many people are earning their living this way or losing their earnings um this 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 way um so i'm i'm curious like was it in, was it intentional for you to you know to set that aside and have and have the conversation that you did um or is that you know how how do you how, do, how does that fit into your your mental model yeah so partly uh, the truth is that partly when I was writing the book, I mean, it took a few years to actually uh, write the book. And I finished writing it a couple of years before its publication. It was before the big explosion of, of some of those um, spaces that you describe. Um, so that's partly the reason why I think I, they, I would have engaged them a little bit more as interesting examples of that speculative behavior in finance. Um, but at the same time, they would not have been at the center of, of my argument because my argument is intentionally a bit broader about that everyday culture and the everyday sort of social implications and political implications of, of speculation. But I, having said that, I have reflected on uh, things like I mean, something that it's perhaps overly used as an example of these uh, these kind of collective speculative communities, which is the the GameStop saga and and the this very explicit attempt to uh, of of kind of a mass shorting and to give this a political spin and how people folks you know within Reddit and other social media coordinate these kind of sabotage attacks, which I think. My reflection and what I add to that, again, th this is something that has been the ground of a lot of debate about, you know, is that uh, is, is is that kind of 
uh, event representative of a um, a more a different kind of speculator. And indeed, again, there are a lot of critics that see those speculators as also, you know, this culture, part of this culture of crypto bros, and, you know, there's all sorts of like, problematic aspects like sexism, racism, and, and being part of those cultures. Um, I think that, again, my, the speculative community, community's lens, uh, what could, could offer in, in reading events like that would be uh, a shift of attention towards what uh, makes those people uh, kind of come together and rather and i think you know it's very important to ask the question what drives uh, a kind of speculative um uh, event like the gamestop saga uh, beyond the uh, kind of quick the opportunity for making you know a huge amount of money into you know very quickly um I, that is part of the story but I, I don't think it's the full story and and we missed the craving for connection that is also and, and it's about it's also about an answer to the to the kind of status quo within finance right and uh, and it is a collective answer and it's coordinated as well so i i find those elements very interesting but when it comes to the forum that you discuss and and um uh, bitcoin and the sort of decentralized platforms and their potential uh I simply have to confess that, you know, these are not areas that I have sufficient knowledge to make comments about their their, their role in that, that picture that I'm trying to paint. I think they're relevant. What I can say, Ian, and, and I, I'm really curious in your thoughts and how you see the connections. What I can say is that I've been reluctant to um, delve into these worlds because I'm also mindful of some of the, what I described at the beginning of our conversation, the naivety that I see in some observers that I, I'm always skeptical about celebrating the new uh, in terms of, you know, I, I'm sympathetic to the decentralization argument as you will have a guess, but I'm also mindful of seeing it as another form of deterministic kind of solution. Um, uh, uh, to, uh, and so, you know, I think there are deep problems to do with inequality of resources that we don't all have uh, the same access to, uh, inequality of, you know, uh, opportunities, um, education, uh, you know, material security. And I think these are important questions for a speculative community. And I am I'm, I'm interested in, in hearing also from you, you know, whether you see in those spaces you des describe um, opportunities to address that community aspect in powerful ways yeah so let me let me share a few thoughts i i really i, I would i'd love to like to to engage you more in this and talk to you more about this because i think i think that you'll find some really interesting things when you when you look under the under the covers here you know first of all i always say that you know people who you know you, you definitely have to kind of dive in relatively deep to, to to see what's actually going on i always make the joke that you know if you read an article in the wall street journal about bored apes and then make up your mind about nfts it's like listening to the song despacito and making up your mind about music right it's it's actually like kind of a an irrelevant um you know t top level phenomenon that 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 doesn't that doesn't expose you know what's going on underneath um and I think, you know, the, the, the interesting thing, I, I think that so much of, of what you have, first of all, I think it's actually 
very fortunate that you that you did write the book that you wrote without touching these subjects it actually makes it kind of clean you haven't touched that third rail um at all um and it's also you know so because you're either going to have to to go all the way into it which is going to be super complicated or you're going to touch it in that despacito kind of way which is going to not do it justice and you're not going to get to the heart of it so i think actually it, it makes your book both for me um more challenging to kind of get my head around the reason that i i had such a um that i found it so challenging for me personally is that i do have this view about the way technology has changed culture and it has to do with this kind of proliferation of information and consumer choice and moving us from mass markets to niche communities and what that you know and what that does and then throwing the word speculation on there but not going into the speculative asset place it's like wait we're, we're almost there so but, but we're so I, I i like personally that that i had to kind of you know um get my head around that in a in a in a way that was really about um the way that we're changing as humans because we have um you know this this choice and this new way of storytelling this new way of building community and um a new way of envisioning the future, which is, I think, you know, kind of what you're getting at that, you know, what I always say in a very, in an oversimplified way is like, when you reconnect humanity, you change humanity. And that doesn't matter if it's the printing press or, you know, um, air, automotive travel, air travel, train travel, you know, ultimately silicon chip and internet, <clears throat> you know, when you reconnect humanity, you, you change humanity. So, you know, first of all, I, I actually believe that I think Web3 is a is a misnomer because it makes it sound incremental to Web2 when it's actually a separate technological revolution in the Carlotta Perez technological revolution, um, you know, sort of way. Um, you know, you, one, one technological revolution is this, this um, revolution of information, which was the internet. And now you have a separate revolution of value that's layered on top of that revolution of information. And that will be you know, incredibly disruptive. I think, you know, the way to think about it is to, to go out to the eventual, um, you know, reality that, you know, ultimately your, your government document will be a digital document. And the way that you move borders is you prove you are the owner of the wallet that contains that document. And now you work backwards, right? So you say, okay, what happens when everyone has digital value? Um, and then I think the interesting thing and where you'll find, um, some some really fascinating things if you look you know not in these like um there's a and then by the way there are plenty of scams shysters um you know make a quick buck sort of things out there but if you if you if you set those aside and you say okay that's that's normal you're always going to to have that you're also always going to have more aspirants than success stories right i always use the example of music or writing you know there are 100 million songs on apple music there are only roughly a million that people love we don't then say oh music is garbage right we recognize that there are a lot of people who want to be rock stars and there are fewer rock stars right um so you, you kind of take into account all of those things right um and then you look into some of these communities like the generative art community specifically in the world around that um there's a there's an emerging ai art community um you know so if you look into say you know art blocks or fx hash and generative art or you look into brain drops in the the ai art community and just within these there are things that are very interesting um dynamics there's um there's nft art collecting that goes on um in this community a very relatively small community of, of people it's on a chain called Tezos. It's on sites like object.com and Versum and, and FX hash. 
Um, but right now I was noticing this morning a whole bunch of artists um, posting art and the proceeds are all going to people in Turkey. Um, I was, you know, texting with a Turkish artist that I collect on, um, you know, Twitter today. I just said, Hey man, how are you doing? He wrote back, you know, honestly, not good. Um, you know, and, and, you know, there, so there's, here's a, an artist I've never seen. I don't know what he looks like. I have tens of pieces of his art. I have a relationship with him. I have a, I have a, a patron artist relationship with him. I actually give him money regularly, right? So there's there's something incredibly fascinating, you know, about this. And I also care about him as a human being, even though I've never met him, you know, and I I I um you know, so there's 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 these these layers inside of these, you know, communities are quite real. And I think that yes, these communities are very small today, but you know, to your point about um online communities and uh, you know, you were mentioning the the kind of um, Korean pop fans that that um, and and Trump. I mean, I I dropped out of grad school in 1995 to go on tour with the Beastie Boys because I was the guy who ran the Beastie Boys online community, right? So, you know, I remember you know 1993, 94 when you know if I told people what it was I was doing, they would look at me and go, "Are you are you okay, man?" You know, so it doesn't scare me that these communities are small today because I know they'll be bigger tomorrow. I've seen this movie, this movie before, and then it's and it's what happens. There's like a fundamental human urge, and it comes back. That's why I like that that you're 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 pushing on. I love I love your example on the on on both GameStop and um, the K-pop uh, ones because yes, there is either a political motive or a financial motive, but but I completely agree with you. There is also this um, fundamental human need to be an individual, to be a part of a group of like-minded people, to feel that connection, to be a part of something. Um, you know, and I think it's where, when Balaji talks about, you know, God to network, I mean, God to state to network, you, you really start to see parallels, right? People were members of religion. They were, they were members of states and nationalists, and now they are members of communities. And for many of us, those community memberships mean more to us, right? The, the opinion of, of, you know, a person who is a member of one of my communities is like, you know, could be more crushing to me as in my self-esteem than you know somebody else who is part of my government you know like it's 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 not where my affinity lies so i and i think so i, I think that I, I love it actually i i i really um i would love to 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 dig into it more with you um over time because i think that there i think that there will i think you'll find a lot of 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 what you're saying rings true and i actually love that it's separate from your previous work that makes a lot of make i think it actually gives credence um, to what you do, what, what you would say, because it's not simply about the, like, you know, the, the, the kind of sp the financial speculate, you know, speculation, it's an extension of that. And I think if, if I could, if I could, uh, you know, do posit a thought exercise for you within that, that maybe connects the two worlds. I really believe, you know, so I, I we spend time talking to the Instagram team about what they have planned with digital assets. And it's actually quite interesting. Um, I spoke last evening, um, with Ron Ferris, who's running these things at Nike. So Nike has a dot swoosh. And I think it's very interesting to think about what, what Instagram and Nike might do here, because like what, you know, me and some other, you know, geeks are doing, um, you know, in this unknown world of, you know, it's like, we're, it's like, we're playing Dungeons and Dragons maybe. But when you think about Instagram and, and Nike, well, now we're really at a very pop culture level. And I think the, the way this might relate to the work you've already done is imagine 
you know, one of those influencers on, on Instagram, I think this will happen this year, instead of just posting a photo, they post a photo and say, there are 500 of them. It's $5. And when it's gone, I'm taking the photo down. Right now you have a community that already exists and they are suddenly engaging in speculation in a totally different way. Right. And it's not just, it's, I'm sure at that case, it won't only be, Oh, I've got to buy that. It might be worth $500 tomorrow. Right. It's they've, they've all, they already have an affinity for whomever this, this person they're following is and the opportunity to connect with them in a new way could be very exciting them completely separate from, you know, well, maybe the $5 is going to become 500. Right. Um, and so I think that that is in a lot of ways, the world that we're walking into a world where that is possible. And just, you know, one last thing, I'd be really curious what you think. I, I, I make a joke with my friends at Instagram where I say, man, if this happens, like, it'll be much easier for you to get out of bed in the morning. Right. Because your job now is an advertising business, which is effectively stealing people's attention and selling it to someone else and stealing is a crime. And imagine if instead Instagram became a value exchange between people who create and people who love the things that they create. It would be much easier for me to get out of bed in the morning if that were, if that were my job. So I'm, I'm imagining a world where, where there's some shift like that one and money that might've been used to create content to, you know, to, put into a channel to reach an audience actually just goes directly to an audience. The value goes to the community. Like there's actually a short circuit of that attention economy on some scale. Um, anyway, I think, I think those are the, the interesting things. I, I'm, I'm, I'm curious if any of that resonates with you. And, and I'm really curious if, if you might like start, you know, poking on that direction. Oh, this is all uh, so very interesting. Ian. And, um, yeah, I, I, a lot of food for thought for me. I, I should say that I'm working on a new book project, which I call te tentatively The Real Fake. And it's an attempt to, I think I will have to inevitably look into some of those worlds in, in, in greater uh, sort of detail. It's an attempt to look at the force of distortion in, in our lives. So from speculation to distortion. Um, and that's very, I mean, you know, in the worlds of, uh, I guess, um, you know, AI-driven uh, images and, and algorithms and, and NFTs, and it's not just a departure from reality. There's something about creating a new reality um, that really interests me. And uh, so, yes, I think partly my, my answer to you is I not only is it inevitable, but I, I think can be extremely rich and generative to look into some of the uh, platforms and the the examples that you give, but I can also give you my more kind of immediate thoughts on what you say there about Instagram and uh, moving. If I understand you correctly, from these um, kind of attention economy uh, that is kind of extractive of the users to to uh, remobilization or weaponization of that economy for the community. I mean. It, it, Correct me if I'm misreading you. Um, <laughs> I think there's a potential for that. There's plenty of potential for bad as well, but there is a there is mm -hmm. a potential for 
value exchange and mm. community ownership. Yeah. So I'm I'm really interested in that. And I see it as a I think these are the avenues that precisely we should be exploring for opportunities. Like I'm interested, you know, I should say I'm interested in a better future for the many, you know. I'm I'm interested in a kind of radical vision of humanity that involves uh, uh, improving conditions for people that are deprived and live in, uh, in you know, in circumstances that don't even allow them to participate in those kind of speculative communities that we're discussing. You know, that's at the heart of my, what drives my work. So what I would say to the examples that you give is that um, I think it's fascinating and I would, I would even push it further, right? I would, I would be interested to see how that kind of value creation through uh, that relationship between, you know, the in, the influencer and the, the the user can lead to even more radical redistributions of uh, of value. Uh, and and um, yeah, I mean, I think there are there. Are, so that that's what I would say here is that um, I don't think that something like Instagram itself can be the sole vector, the sole kind of space for these kind of uh, developments, I, I think it has an important role, but I would be very interested and curious in, in your thoughts on how to make the connections across platforms like Instagram and this type of attention economy and value creation and, you know, deprived uh, communities that lack the, the access to, to those very platforms. And, and so, you know, is there, I, I'm, I would put the question even more forcefully about radical change and how to spill over those kind of effects onto wider realms of society. Um, and I, I hope that doesn't sound too utopian, but, you know, it, to me, it's, it's, it should be core in our rethinking of, uh, of value creation and connections and translating those connections into something bigger. I mean, for me, that's very important. Even just last night, I had dinner with a with a with a, a big NFT collector, and he was telling me about you know a, um, a one of his favorite artists that um, and he sent me the the tweet later the the artist finally saying or saying I finally quit my job and I've become you know a full time artist. I mean, I think he was a Google engineer before, so I don't think that's exactly a redistribution of wealth or going from you know from from have have not to have. Um, but I, I know that, you know, for some of these artists that are that are in places, you know, like Turkey or Brazil, that that these platforms have been have completely changed their means. But I think that that's by no means evenly distributed across any communities. Right. So I think uh, I think there will be a redistribution. Um, I doubt that it'll be equal. Right. Um, I also think that there will be, um, you know, I, I think that <clears throat> Balaji's construct of, of from state to network is largely correct because we we live our lives under under network regimes um and these network regimes are global um you know but they are also stratified right you know if you and i think you know it's it's interesting to me i mean it's 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 crazy but true you know i mean i i own a u.s passport i also own a french you know work visa that means i was able to move during covid when many other people were not um and i own uh, a proof pass, which is an NFT that uh, gets me privileges in the NFT community that other people don't have. So I don't think it solves the problem. The technology does not does not solve the problem at all. I think it certainly creates opportunity, 
right? And that will mean, you know, opportunities for people who wouldn't have had opportunities otherwise. But, you know, technology has done that generally, right? I mean, I'm, my, my, uh, my mom worked in a, in a factory and then she was a nurse. My dad was a fireman. You know, I've had a completely different career because I studied computer science and I studied computer science during the advent of the internet, right? So, you know, my, my earning potential was, was, was simply different in that, and that, technology provided me a new opportunity, but everyone in my high school class from Goshen, Indiana did not participate in, in that same opportunity. So I think it certainly provides opportunities, you know, in that way, it also does provide this layer of abstraction because what is interesting about the Instagram example is that when Instagram sells a digital collectible, that digital collectible is immediately available for sale on any platform because it is actually a digital item on a blockchain it is not a digital item owned by Instagram. It's not locked into Instagram world. It's, 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 it is something that was a sale that was facilitated by Instagram, you know, just like a sale might be facilitated by Amazon, but the item now exists as a sovereign, you know, item that can travel um, in this kind of frictionless uh, international marketplace. So I think that there are some, you know, some really, you know, new dimensions. I do it might, so there, I would I'd point you to, um, you might find interesting a podcast I did a, a couple of weeks ago with, uh, with a guy named Yancey Strickler, who used to be the, C, uh, the CEO of Kickstarter. And he has a new endeavor called uh, MetaLabel. Kickstarter was a, you know, a public benefit corporation. Yancey is very interested in a more pluralistic society. And what he's doing with MetaLabel is he is building tools for creators, but not single creators, tools for communities of creators. Which I think might be an interesting direction toward what you're what you're saying, because it, you know he's he's specifically sort of acknowledging that creativity is is never just a single person on their own. It's usually a group of people, and those and there and you can actually create a creative community. It's what a record label has been, you know. It's what um, you know Andy Warhol's The Factory was, you know, is a, a creative community. And how can that? How what are new constructs, or how might this technology? Um, you know, create new opportunities for people to band together uh, in new ways. I think that might head more in the direction of what you're of what you're interested in uh, in, in terms of creating a more pluralistic uh, society. Um, but you know, it's you have to acknowledge that you know, like a like fire or a brick, technology is merely a tool. I think the thing that interests me most. Um, and I, I, there's one question, simple question I'd like to, to wrap on, but I think that, that the thing, reason I enjoyed your book so much is because you, you know, you, you, uh, you show this, you show that we as humans are not as separate from technology as we like to think we are, right? And that's a theme for me as well, is that we like to think of ourselves as these like sovereign creatures and technology is our tool. But the reality is, is that technology reshapes society and you know, the way you put it reshapes humanity, you know, from, from homo economists to homo speculans, right? Like that's a, that's an evolution of, of humanity that is at the hands of the technology that, that, that we have available. So I think that, that, that will be the case. Um, and sure, I would like to influence that for, you know, a better outcome, but it's almost like saying, I want to be sure that, you know, fire is used for good and not evil. Well, my dad was a fireman. So, you know, we've done that in my family. Um, but you know, I'm obviously not going to, you know, cure the world of places burning down or people dying from fire. Right. I feel the same with this, with this technology. Um, so, uh, I mean, I'll let you respond to that. And then just the, as a final question, you know, I also found your book to be, you know, there's a, a lot of references to, um, to great, um, reading material, 
in your book. I mean, one was uh, Imagined Communities, which is a which is a book I, I I have on my shelf but have not read. If if I'm honest, also you you mentioned you mentioned earlier um, uh, books like um, uh, Surveillance Capitalism, you know, et cetera. I'm curious, what's on your you know if if you're going to send me away to um, you know based on our conversation to read a to read a couple of books, what do you what do you recommend for me? Yeah, definitely. So uh, just before I do that, just very, very briefly on what you were saying, I think, you know, I, I broadly agree with you uh, in, in the, uh, with the point about recognizing the inevitability and the uh, inescapability of our technological, technologized world. You know, we, we can only, I guess part of what I try to say in the book is that there's no outside of that you know there's this kind of uh, uh this advice we hear uh, in moments like this about you know if only uh we kind of um switch off our phones or you know move to the countryside and you know sure there's something you know live the bucolic life and you know produce our own goods i don't i i think these can be great things but switching off, merely switching off, like it, it, that's an escapism that doesn't interest me. And so, you know, we are, like you say, I mean, you know, we are, our lives are changing and we are agents of that change. I think that's an important acknowledgement. And, and one, one point that I'd yeah. like to make on that is that, mm. by the way, I actually go, I, I take a bit of offense at it. I would actually love to turn off my phone and, and move to the countryside. Now, mm-hmm. if I have the privilege to do that, it's because I have the privilege to do it. If I am if I am low income and hustling, I need my mm. phone almost at, more yeah. than anyone else on the planet. Yeah. So anyone who says, "Oh, I'm going to throw my phone away," it's like, "Wow, yeah. you must have a pretty great life, right?" Yeah. I, you know, I I hope I can accumulate enough wealth that I can actually turn my phone off. Yeah. That would be that'd be incredible. So, um, I think it's it's worth recognizing that you know the person who's delivering your food needs their phone, you know, more than you do. Exactly, one hundred percent. Absolutely, this is a key point, uh, and. I would push that even a little bit further, and I would suggest that not only uh, it's futile or even offensive, like you say, to suggest that switching off is can be a productive way forward, but I would even say that articulating, uh, producing a critique of the current unfairness and injustice that is embedded in our systems can only happen within those technologized worlds, using the tools that we are provided by these technologies. It cannot happen. This critique and this critical action cannot happen in this imaginary outside. I, I think that's that's a key point for me. Totally agree. Thank um, you. And maybe you know my suggestion about what what's on my kind of bookshelf, what I'm reading at the moment. I like one one author uh, that I would highly recommend, whose work touches he, uh, actually an artist, uh, James Bridle. I don't know if you've come across his work. Um, he is he's also I think he studied computer science so he's also a technologist and uh he he wrote that book um the new dark age a few years back uh and which is actually it makes some of those arguments about how we need to kind of embrace technology in different ways whilst being aware about the pernicious aspects of this but he wrote a new book now that I'm reading currently and I think it's fascinating which is called new ways of being and it looks at different kinds of intelligence in that uh, uh, both in the non-human world, so like plant and animal kind of intelligence, but also technological, artificial, uh, AI type of intelligence. And he's he makes a fascinating argument about the need to move away 
from a kind of solutionism that, you know, we need to kind of create the new technologies to uh, to improve our modes of modeling and intelligence to one that we need to learn actually how technologies and different kinds of intelligence already interact. And some of, some of you know, he looks at examples of, you know, plants and, and insects and how their patterns and rituals, uh, you know, can be very interested in terms of the, like, if you look at them algorithmically and the, the, the kind of the, the, the intelligence they produce is very similar to some of our technological modes of intelligence. Uh, I'm not making justice to his argument. It's much more nuanced than that. But, but I think fascinating precisely in the, uh, from the perspective of thinking through creatively about connections and networks across different kind of agents of our very complex world um, that are more hopeful as well, more optimistic. That's great. I'm, I definitely will. That really resonates with me. I've uh, I've, I've read, you know, we, it's funny. It's something that we, my, my my wife and I talk about, you know, that sort of, you know, plant intelligence as, in, as intelligence, you know, or, you know, the plant bias that keeps us from studying fungus. You know, there is a lot of, of communication going on out there that we don't spend a lot of time thinking about and in many ways don't even know that much about. So yeah. I'll definitely, I will definitely take that, take you up on that one. Thank you so much. Aris, thank you so much for for taking the time. You know, again, this was a bit of a flyer for both of us, and I really enjoyed it. Um, and I, I, I thank you a lot for taking the time to 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 talk to us on on the on the ledger. Thank you, Ian. The pleasure was all mine, and uh, also I really enjoyed it. And I'm I'm going to leave this conversation and go away and uh, look into some of this fascinating material that you recommended for me. So yeah, thank you very much. This content is provided for informational purposes only and is the sole expression of our opinion and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment or tax advice. Do your own research. Any loss or profit is your sole responsibility. Stay safe.